Welcome. It's uh, Palm Sunday already. Next week's Easter. And we're going to be studying 2 Corinthians 6 this morning. But before we do, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that brought us into the body of Christ and the grace that sustains us together as your little flock and the grace that comes to us as we sit under the teaching of the Word and as we admonish one another and as we pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you graciously work in our midst. And we pray for the dear saints that don't have such privileges to be able to gather with so many people that love the truth and are hungry for the Word. And so they listen on the Internet and they pray from afar. We pray for them that you would bless them and help them find the remnant wherever they may be that they might gather together. And we all together we ask for wisdom from your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying 2 Corinthians 6, and we have this big, long sentence. The sentence Paul wrote starts, I can't remember where he started even. We've been on the same sentence for three weeks. I think it started in verse 2, and it ends on verse 13. So that's a long sentence. Okay, 2 Corinthians 6, and we are in verse... There's a list of contrasts, pairs, that, that we're going through that Paul uses to be descriptive of his own ministry, what it's like for him to be in the ministry. And so it says here, uh, last week we covered impurity, knowledge, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God by weapons of righteousness for the right and the left. No, today, verse 8, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Let me go ahead and read a few, a few more. As unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet make, making many rich, is having nothing yet possessing all things. Now, this section where we have these contrasts, some of these probably are contrasting various responses to Paul. And I think in some cases, the contrast is between how people perceive Paul and his ministry and how things really are. But it isn't just one consistent way of, of doing this here. And as, as I said, it's in the middle of a really long sentence. They're actually beginning at the end of verse 8. There, is, there are seven pairs of antitheses. Antitheses. Is that how you say that? Antithesis. Antithesis is. I know what it is. It's seven groups of opposites. <laughs> There's always a word that is pronounceable that you could use. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and these opposites begin at the end of verse 8, regarded as deceivers, yet true. That's one. The second one is unknown, well-known. The third one, dying, yet we live. The fourth, punish, not put to death. The fifth, sorrowful, yet rejoicing. The sixth, poor, 
yet making many rich, and the seventh, having nothing, possessing all things. So there are seven pairings of offices. But before we get to that, we have glory and dishonor. The word for glory is the common one in the New Testament, doxa, or from which we get the English word doxology. And dishonor, the word honor is, uh, it, actually it's just the alpha, alpha privative with the word honor, optimias, dishonor. So, now, it's not hard to see instances in Acts where this literally plays out. There are so many that, well, I'll read some, but we don't want to read all of them because we'd be reading just through Acts. But if you read through the book of Acts, not only Paul, but the other apostles, you see these huge contrasting responses or reports about what was being done or, or about whether Paul was a quality person or not. And you saw, you saw that an awful lot toward the end of Acts when he's on trial and the Romans are trying to figure out what's going on, okay? Because they just want peace in their kingdom. They're not, at the end of the day, they're, favor, they're not trying to figure out somebody else's religious dispute, okay? But that's literally what happened because the Jews were accusing Paul before the Roman authorities, and there were these mixed messages. Remember the one time, for example, where Paul was on trial and he finally got up and said, I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. When that was a move on Paul's part to create confusion in the camp because the people that were accusing him were a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees do not believe in it. And so when he said that, then, then there started an internal dispute. Oh, well, maybe he's not so bad <laughs> if you're a Pharisee. And... And so there, there were these different responses to the same message. So let's look at one that's interesting. Acts 14, I'm going to begin with verse 8 and see how there were these radically different responses that could be really good or they could be really bad. In this case, it starts out with what you might say was a good Response, but it really isn't a good one. It's a bad one because these pagans wanted to commit acts of idolatry with Paul as the object. Okay, Acts 14, starting with verse 8. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian uh, language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. Oh, now that's a good report. Well, <laughs> if you're a pagan, you would think that was a good thing. Now, what would most people do in that circumstance? Take up an offering. <laughs> Support your local gods. <laughs> but uh, Paul was uh, better motivated than that. So, verse 12, And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, 
brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice for the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Notice here, by the way, just a little side lesson. We talk a lot about repentance. And not only is the term repentance used in describing people's expected or the, the response that they should make to the gospel, but you have synonyms that show what Paul means. Because some people say repentance is nothing more than something that happens in your mind. You used to think one way, now you think another, and that's the whole exhausted definition of repentance. But the context of things that Paul talks about would indicate that there's more to it than just what you think. Because notice he says you should turn from these vain things, which would be idols, and to a living God. Now, in the Thessalonian correspondence, Paul told them that that's what they'd done. They had turned from idols to serve a living God. And so, when I preach repentance on Sunday, in the gospel part of the message, sometimes I'll take a moment and explain what that means. Okay? Because everybody is serving Somebody or something or some, something that's not really God unless they've been converted. If you, even an atheist is serving something, the atheist is serving himself as the ultimate thing in the universe, right? People serve works-oriented religions. People serve sin. People serve various kinds of idolatry. So in a real way, conversion is turning from idolatry, be it mental or physical, or whatever it is, turning from what we were serving and then serving God on His terms, however those terms are described in the inerrant text of Scripture. And so God is the Creator. Then, verse 16, And in the generations gone by, He permitted the nations to go their own ways, and yet He did not leave Himself without a witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. So He's pointing out to the Gentiles about general revelation. Okay? The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you ever enjoyed the sunshine, you had a witness that there's a creator God who's good. This is Romans 1 sort of stuff. And then he says this, And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. He couldn't get these people away from their idolatry. Now, let's, let's read a little further here. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, <laughs> supposing him to be dead. You know why he says good report and evil report? <laughs> He's a god. Let's sacrifice to him. Then the next thing to do, they're going to stone him. Then they did stone him. So they stoned him. So now it got really bad. They healed the guy, so he first is going to be a god, and then he's going to be killed. So they stoned him, dragged him out of the city. 
Verse 20, But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. The next day, and after they had preached the gospel, <laughs> they, they, they stone him. I love this passage. They stone him, and so the way he responds to fight back is he gets up and goes preaches the gospel. That's a good lesson in life, don't you think? They stone you? All right, just for that, I'm going to preach the gospel. So, good report, evil. You know, so, I read that little section just to show this. I mean, this is literally what the way things were for the apostle. And then, there's, a, uh, there's some words here. Dusphemias and euphemias. They sound similar, but they're opposites. Evil report, good report. Comes out fairly good in the English. Regarded as deceiver is yet true. Now, here's what, what lesson do we learn here? In fact, by the, the word deceivers, planos, was used of Jesus in Matthew 26.63. In Matthew 26.63, Jesus was called the same thing, a deceiver. Now, this is indicative of the gospel itself. The truth of the gospel is the most divisive thing in the world, in my opinion. The reason it's divisive is that it divides the saved from the lost. And it divides the church from the world. And the world is under the power of the prince of this world, the God who blinds the minds of those who are lost. And so, whether people believe there's a Satan or not, or they believe there's anything spiritual or not, they're under the power of darkness. And so the gospel divides, divides in that way, and this hostility that we see in Acts might seem, why is that so extreme? But this is just what the gospel creates. Remember in Luke, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but division. It's just the, the result of the gospel. So, the people that don't believe the gospel consider Paul a deceiver and that he's got bad motives. And the people who are converted, like the Thessalonian church, they are full of gratitude. They're willing to put their lives on the line. And that's what it looks like to be converted. Yes. I would say that in the church, the churches that uh, have in the visible church, the church of just of a group of people that have uh, both saved and unsaved, the way that you keep peace in a church of saved and unsaved saved is to obscure the gospel so there's no division. And if the gospel comes to a church that has both saved and unsaved, there is a division or a fight that begins because both messages can't be true. You're either saved by grace, your faith in Jesus Christ, or you're not. The scriptures are either true and have authority, or they don't. Exactly. And that battle comes to the surface then in a church where the gospel is preached. That's the number one thing that I hear. I don't think there's been a week in the last five years that I haven't heard from somebody in a church that's dividing over the gospel. I just heard a report from who? Mary Ann was talking to my wife. It was here for your part, right? Yeah. There were 60 people. Was that it? That met with their <laughs> a friend of mine came to the Faith at Risk 3, and then she came to the last one, Hearing from God. Yeah. And she, you know, hounds me every week, one of those CDs in, one of those CDs in, you know. And 
she said they were meeting. They, they finally got them. People listened to them. And Tuesday night, they met with the elders at their church because the last year has just been horrendous there. And she said that um, the elders were just taken back by what they said was creeping into the emergent church. And they said that they were going to study it and they were going to do something about it. And they made it very clear that that's what's happening there. And she said it was exciting because a lot of people have listened and said, yep, that's the problem. We have to get it out. So they're going to stick with the gospel in that church. Yeah. All right. There's a good report. <laughs> hey. Well, you know, Diane was telling me that report that she heard, and I thought, you know, every once in a while it's nice to hear a, a victory. You know, that the people said, we want the word taught, and we want to hear the gospel. And the elders looked at all the evidence and said, okay, that's what we're going to do. Okay. Sorry, Gretchen. Okay. Uh, this is out of Matthew 6:24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Good for you. That's, that's very applicable. That's an astute reading. <laughs> because this is basically two principles that are alien in, in relationship to one another. The principle that drives this present world this summarized in second or first John two, remember where it says all that is in the world, it summarizes it in three big categories. All that's in the world. The lust of the eyes, the the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And that's your mammon, however you see it. The, the things that this world has that would look like what you need or what you want or what you would want to serve. And you can't serve both. So that's why this description that Paul gives to turn to serve is really a very, very good description of what repentance is. If you look up in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, under the word for repent, that uh, metanoeo, the Greek word, but if you look it up, they have a great essay in there that says that the, the New Testament concept of repentance is really grounded in the Jewish idea of conversion in the Old Testament. So, so there, there's, there's this term that I like to use called conversion. And it is just that radical. It's stepping out of the darkness into the light and from sin to being, having the imputed righteousness of Christ and serving mammon to serving God. And so once that happens, you get these diverse reactions. Now, the reason, you made a good point, and then Marianne mentioned uh, why are there battles going on in churches? Well, at, at the end of the day, the reason this is happening is because of becoming very, very good at filling churches up with the unconverted. And the better you are at doing that, then what happens, let's say a church goes for 20 years being very good at filling the church with unconverted by whatever it means, meeting felt needs, having really good music, having everything wonderful, offering to take care of the kids, whatever it is, okay? When that happens, if the gospel is preached forthrightly to that church, it'll divide the church. Well, they'll either get saved or they'll get offended. If they don't, if they don't get their ears tickled, they're going to get mad. That's what happened at the church I was going to, and that's why I left, because they actually voted my pastor out. 
Okay, Cheryl just said her pastor has voted out. So, well, anyhow, now on the other hand, if a church is grounded on conversions to start with, whether it's a real little church, it, the size isn't the issue. It really isn't. In other words, if somebody got to be a guest preacher at John MacArthur's church and preach the gospel, they wouldn't get thrown out. Even though he has a really, really big church, it's grounded on the idea of gospel preaching and conversions. But if the same person went to the Crystal Cathedral and preached the same message, what do you think would happen then? All right. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying there is no person ever converted in a crystal cathedral. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying everybody in John MacArthur's church has to be saved. I'm not saying that either. But the people are going to gravitate, if they're converted, to the truth of the gospel, and they're going to gravitate, if they're not converted, to positive thinking. All right. I think that the whole concept is what's presented as the core problem in the church, is sin the core problem or is your unfulfillment the core problem? Those two different problems have different answers that you're preaching. And if sin is the core problem and my standing there before the wrath of God in Judgment Day is the core problem, then I'm looking for a different solution than if I just feel unfulfilled. And those two different messages will uh, will affect yeah. those, those crowds exactly. differently. Exactly. So... The point we're making out of our passage, okay, this is always going to be the case. It's always going to be the case that the reaction is going to be glory or dishonor, evil report or good report, regarded as a deceiver, regarded as true. It's always going to be the case. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, who do we want to regard us as true? The world or God's church? Right answer, <laughs> God's church. But see that—that's I mean, it's really an easy way to look at it, okay? And in the case of Paul, if you can read in Acts, you can see what he preached, and you can see what the reaction was, and from whom. Um, maybe another lesson about this is don't take the praise or the insults too seriously, or maybe a better lesson is don't take yourself too seriously. The bottom line is the message, not the person. One more incident, and I won't read the whole story, but just as a very uh, interesting incident, it's very similar to one we read about earlier in Acts 14. This is in Acts 28, if you want to turn to it. And this was the story of Paul's shipwreck. Okay? He ended up shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And here's what he says. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he had been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Okay, so the natives had a sort of belief in fate. If you were guilty, fate will get you. And so he was, he was a prisoner. He was shipwrecked. 
So they had reason to think he probably was guilty. Why else would he be a prisoner on a Roman ship? But, and so when he was bit, right, the gods sent justice. They saw this, saw this murderer. He got what he deserved. Verse 5, but, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. <laughs> so he went from a murderer to a god in you know, just that amount of time. Now, the truth is he's neither. They were examining things based on their basic pagan worldview. Okay, I have a few cross-references. Yeah, we got a pretty good role of people here. Uh, Keith, do you want to do Matthew 5, 11 and 12, and Dick, John 7 and verse 12, and Joanne, 1 Corinthians 4, 10 through 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 10 through 13. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you rejoice when you're insulted. Only if it's because of me, Jesus said. Because remember, Peter says, if you're buffeted for your faults, what glory is that? In other words, Peter's warning is don't go out and do really bad things and then say, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It should be for, actually for Christ's sake, not any other reason. Okay, and the next one is John 7 and verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. That was the mixed report about Jesus. So there's a mixed report about Jesus. It's no surprise that there's a mixed report about his apostles. <laughs> okay, 1 Corinthians 4, 10 through 13. I think Paul tells a little bit of his story there. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Wow. So Paul was talking about how he was treated and then how... They responded in return in a way that would be honoring to Christ. This same story, by the way, continued on in early church history. Because if you uh, want to read some interesting documents from early church history, some of my favorite are these early apologies, especially the one from Justin Martyr. Or he had two apologies. Justin Martyr and then Tertullian wrote these apologies, but they spoke very much like Paul did, and they would say, okay, here's how you treat us. You throw us to the lions, you demand that we burn in, you know, curse Christ, and um, sometimes they were actually kind of sarcastic about it. Uh, Justin says, what kind of criminals do you think that we are? He says, every other criminal you try to catch, you want them to confess. But we were willing to confess and you punish us for it. <laughs> because they were saying, you have to deny Christ. He said, well, 
What are you upset about? We confess all the time. Would, would that all your robbers and murderers would do the same thing. So read that sometime. If you want to enjoy uh, some reading it. But he says, what, what, I think this was Justin. Sometimes I get confused between Justin and Tertullian. But he says, why do you consider us Christians the, the evil rabble of your society? Now, this is totally from memory from 20 years ago. So if there's a Justin scholar out there, forgive me if I don't get it exactly right. And he says, we are told by our Lord to pay taxes. So we do. We are commanded to pray for you and for the well-being of Caesar and his kingdom. And so we do. We're commanded to obey the laws, and so we do. So here we are, good citizens, and for this you kill us and torture us and persecute us. Why? That's in very, that remind me of what Paul was saying about how he was treated. So that was still early in the first century. I think Justin was martyred in 155 A.D. Yes. Um, I think I remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, directing his disciples, if a man slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Yes, he did teach that. That was the Sermon on the Mount. And the lesson is that Christianity is not a world religion that's spread by the sword. It's not the end of the world if we're not popular. You don't try to get even. That's true. It's a hard one, isn't it? It's tough. (laughs) Well, one thing that would help all of us is to realize that we're entrusting ourselves to God, who is the just judge. That in the end of, at the end of all of history, God is going to have the final say. And God is the judge, not man. And so the best thing we can do is understand what the Bible says as best we can and pray that God gives us grace to live by it. And we need help for that. It's not like we can just, oh, okay, I'm going to do everything it says. Well, we would like to do everything it says, but we need God to help us. And that's why we gather together. That's why we pray with one another. That's why we teach the Bible, which is a means of grace. And so we need all each other to help us that we can try to do the best we can by God's grace and power working in us to live a way that would be honoring to him. And if that's the case, then at the end of the whole story... God will be the judge, and if we're, if we're hated and dishonored and what have you here, this world is real short. I use the illustration of high school, if you want to think of that. It's something we all experienced. Do you remember in high school how big everything was? I mean, stupid, silly little things like who's friends with whom, and who's popular, and who's cool. And it's like, it's just like the end of the world. And if you're on the wrong end of it, it's like, oh, this is horrible. I can't deal with this. All right. Now, what do you know now? <laughs> it means nothing. I was worried about nothing. It was just silly. It was foolish. It doesn't mean anything. What somebody else in high school thought about me when I was in high school means so little to me now. In fact, by the time I was 21, it meant nothing to me. All right. Think about that as a microcosm of a whole life. All right, And our whole life is like being in high school because a, a, a thousand years is a day as far as the Lord is concerned compared to eternity. And so we are 
thinking how I'm treated at work, how my family treats me, what people say about me. It's, you know, it's, it's cruel, it's devastating, it's harmful. But remember this, there's going to be a day coming when the only thing that's going to matter is what God says. And I believe that we'll look back on this and think, what were we so worried about? Okay, just a little lesson there. No extra charge. Let's go to verse 9. As unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death. There's a quote here. I mean, there's the same phrase, by the way, found in Psalm 118, 17, and 18. Uh, Denise, would you like to look up Psalm 118, 17, and 18? I'm going to be talking about that in the sermon, too. I just want to say more on the, as deceivers and yet true. I think that, that concept is such a, a core one because when it comes down to the message and this divisiveness in the church, the people who are being divisive are supposed to be thrown out. But it depends on what your, what your message is as to who's really divisive. Because Paul was being accused by his enemies, as his opponents in the church, as being a deceiver. In essence, Paul's calling them deceivers. So you have two opposing parties, each calling the other one a deceiver. And it's up to the discerning congregation to decide who is true because they both can't be, they both can't be true. The messages mm-hmm. are, are, are opposite. Mm-hmm. So Paul's message here is very, that's very strong. You're a deceiver or I'm a deceiver. But we're both not true. So what would be the lesson in that? We better really know the Bible and have tender hearts toward whatever God says is true? Psalm 118, 17 and 18. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Yeah, it turns out to this... Dying yet we live, there's, there's a link into the Septuagint of Psalm. Well, we, the Septuagint in the Psalms is always confusing because it's off one. I think in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 117, and ours is Psalm 118. Now, that's a Messianic Psalm. And when it says, it talks about the, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the head of the corner, and it's a Psalm of Ascent. We're going to see that as we talk about Palm Sunday and we talk about the ascent to Jerusalem. So Psalm 118 is one that they sang um, as, a, as a, a royal entry song into Jerusalem. Before the exile, the ascent was usually a kingly, a royal one, where a, a victorious Jewish king was coming back to Jerusalem. After the exile, they didn't have legitimate kings, and so it became a song that was sung during the Feast of Tabernacles or one of the pilgrim feasts. But in it, it's about Christ, and Christ, about him, it says, I shall not die but live, and, and I believe it's a prediction of the resurrection. Back to what Keith was saying, if you have one that's uh, either, either this is true or that is true, and they both can't be true, but then you take, like, the emergent church, and they don't know, they believe all can be true, and anything can be true, and there's no meaning of true. Okay, well, I'll come on, comment on that. It's, it's more than just emergence, this whole postmodern understanding, okay? A postmodern theology or postmodern philosophy or postmodern thinking. The reigning idea is relativism and, and the idea that you really can't know because, see, modernity was based on rationality and the belief that you could come to solve all the mysteries in the universe and know 
if not everything, a lot. All right? But what they neglect in their critique of modernity is to point out that the other thing about modernity was autonomy in relationship to God. And this is what Francis Schaeffer wrote about back in the 60s. So autonomous man says, I'll start with myself and I'll examine the particulars of the universe using science and I'm going to answer all, I'm going to demystify the universe. We'll get rid of the demons and angels and, and stories about talking serpents and all this stuff and we're going to start with ourselves, examine the particulars and come up with a universal field of knowledge that answers all the questions. That failed. And we would agree with post-modernity that says so, that that failed. But what Schaefer said was it failed not because of believing that reason was a valid thing, but because of the autonomy. In other words, a failure to submit to the God who has spoken. So that's why his book, one of his books was, He is there and he is not silent. Okay? So there's no reason to start with man autonomous in the universe and then try to figure out all knowledge and end up solving all the problems. So Schaefer rebuked that back in the 60s. But with postmodern theology, not only are they throwing out the autonomous version of man and reason, they're throwing out the Scriptures as a foundation as well, not because they don't want the Scriptures to be read, but they're saying you can't know. Yeah, so the reason goes out. So... Uh, they're saying we're anti-foundationalists. We're, we're against foundations. We don't believe in foundations. And you'll hear that from all these theologians. And that means the Bible itself is not a foundation. And so everyone can have an opinion, and they don't feel the need to adjudicate rival truth claims. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah we can't decide who's right and who's wrong because it's impossible to know. Right, but also when, when the postmodern thinking or the emergent church is confronted, confronted, whether it be through books like your own or MacArthur's or on a one-in-one uh, witness uh, uh, type deal, unless those people, unless the Holy Spirit is, is working in those people, you can't talk, people aren't going to change what they believe to be their pre-composed uh, 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 yeah. right. uh, idea of what truth is. Okay, all right, good, good point, Brian. Let me just quick comment and we'll get back to this phrase here. The truth of God's word is still powerful whether people want to believe that they can know it or not. It's still what it is. And I'm a strong believer in proclamation. I'm not saying don't do apologetics, and I'm not a, uh, I, I believe in apologetics, and I believe in answering questions. But at the end of the day, it's the message, foolishness of the message preached that will convert, the, save those who believe. Because Paul preached the Athenians, and they mocked him because he preached on the resurrection. He preached to the Jews, and they were offended because they, he said that you're Jewish Messiah, you crucified the hands of godless men, where Peter said that. But the early church was rejected by, because of that claim. And so Paul, in the, to the Corinth, says, okay, the Greeks think that we're foolish, and the Jews are offended, but we preach what? Christ crucified. So there is a powerful thing that happens through the proclamation of the truth. And so I'm committed to proclaiming truth. And the fact that certain people say they don't believe in truth 
or they don't believe in absolute truth, okay, I'm not concerned about that. I think it's a problem for them, but it's not a problem for the gospel. Okay, because God will still save people. I mean, I was a hostile blasphemer before I was converted, and God saved me. Okay. Yeah, this is this is just anecdotal, uh, but I um, I had a thought this week where in something I read or heard someone say, whether it was work, it probably was at work, is where do you find truth? Where do you find God? Or it may have been something I re- read. Yeah. You know, because I read a lot, and. My immediate thought, but I didn't say it to this person or even in counterpoint to what I was reading, is you find it in the Bible. Yes. So, and I know that this has been reinforced here in this church because the Bible is a rich source and it doesn't contradict itself. That's all I got. Okay, yes, the Bible does not contradict itself. All right, verse 9, is unknown yet well known. Okay, possibly means human lack of recognition versus divine recognition. As dying is, yet behold, we live, Psalm 118, I believe, because I mean, that's a Messianic psalm. And if you, if you read through all of Psalm 118, you can actually preach the gospel right out of that psalm, including the resurrection. The whole gospel, uh, the, the basics of the gospel are all in Psalm 118, if you want to preach it from there. Um, as punished, yet not put to death. Well, remember the stories you read in Acts where Paul was stoned, thrown out of town, but he wasn't dead. So he got up and went and preached the gospel. Well, that's one of my favorite stories. Okay, Laura, if you could look up Romans 8. I believe I wrote 36 here. If that verse doesn't seem pertinent, then it was my fault. Okay, it's pertinent. Okay, uh, my. <laughs> As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yes, he quotes an Old Testament and says we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's an interesting fact, if you want to just see the continuity of redemptive history. In the Old Testament times, the people that were faithful to God under the terms of the Old Covenant were the ones who were hated and persecuted, like Jeremiah, right? And they were persecuted by outsiders. Not only were they persecuted by unfaithful Israelites, they were persecuted by other nations that kept trying to wipe out the Jews. Or you can read the story of the book of Esther. Now, the Bible says that the root supports us. So we are grafted into the Jewish olive tree. So we inherited their um, status of being hated by the world. So whoever the... Covenant people of God are, they get that status. I have a comparison. Let's just, did somebody, let's flip to the next verse, and then I have a little chart here that compares these things to the Beatitudes. Because there's an amazing comparison. Verse 10, as sorrowful yet as always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So, in this case, the, the sorrowful would be, if, in fact, if you want to look at the term sorrow and sorrowful, it's used, the term sorrowful in this form is used seven times in Second Corinthians. And if you take the noun cognate, sorrow, 18 times you find this word. 
So this is a letter that's full of sorrows. And the sorrow was the way the Corinthians were treating Paul and listening to Paul's enemies and listening to the super apostles who portrayed themselves in a better light than what he seemed to be in in the minds and eyes of these Corinthian Christians. And I think I mentioned last week when I was rereading the book of Acts the other day, I, I ran into uh, this section where Paul's in Corinth. And remember, I, I said the Lord actually appeared to him and told him to stay in Corinth because the Lord had many people there. So he stayed there because he was in fear and trembling. He said that even in First uh, Corinthians. And he'd had a bad stretch of being rejected in a lot of different places. But the Lord told him to stay in Corinth because the Lord had people that were going to be saved there. Now, I think that partly explains why he's so patient with them. Because the Lord had already told him these were his people. So he's willing to spend and be spent for their sake, even though the result was they did not love him. Now, maybe I can, how can I do this? Yeah, I know. See, I was thinking this would make a good PowerPoint. I have a table here that compares what Paul said with the... Why don't you open up Matthew 5, and I'll I'll read what Paul said, then I'll have you read the verse in Matthew. Okay, Robert? Matthew 5, starting with about verse 10 or so. It'll bounce around a little bit. Okay, here's, here's 2 Corinthians, what Paul said about himself. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5. Troubles, hardships, distresses beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Now read Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same idea. Second Corinthians 6 and verse 6. Impurity. Matthew 5:8. No. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. <laughs> okay. Verse 8 of chapter 6, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine regarded as impostors. Now, if you could look up Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Notice the pattern. It's the same material. I'm still going here. I think i got some more. Uh, in 6.10 of, of this passage here in 2 Corinthians, it says, Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Matthew 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Wow. 6.10, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything, Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, and in Luke 6.20 it says, Blessed are the poor. So... Uh, you might read this litany from Paul and think that he had it extraordinarily bad. But if you read it and then read the, the Beatitudes, you would think that Paul was very, very blessed because just about everything that Jesus declared blessed or to be envied in the Beatitudes, Paul experienced and recounted it in Second Corinthians 6. No, but we don't envy him. I suppose we'd say, well, Lord, we want to be blessed. But is there a different way? <laughs> so, um, yes. What's that? Okay, I'll create it. Okay, good point. Scott just made a good point. We got our reference link. I'll create this into a chart, 
and he'll put it up there so you can download it. Isn't that a great tool? Isn't the Internet wonderful? It's the greatest thing I've seen in my lifetime for spreading the gospel is the Internet. It's, it's unimaginable how just 15 years ago that you could do this, that we could have people all over the world that actually interact with us and ask for prayer and, and, and study the scriptures together and, and read articles and send interaction and, and search the scriptures together. So it's, it's a great thing uh, to get the word out. So this reference link, if we see something really interesting, we just put it up there. You can download it yourself. Could you remember to send me an email tell me to do that? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Just so you all know this, I don't remember anything that was said to me or decided on a Sunday. Literally, it just tell Diane if she's here. She's taking my mom home today. Because my mind is focused in on a sermon and then all these little details. Just Not that they don't do that on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, too. <laughs> <laughs> At least on Sundays, I have an excuse. <laughs> I don't know what to do about those other days. I think it has something to do with being over 50. Okay, so sorrowful yet rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. And what does he mean by this? I believe that Paul, probably how this is to be interpreted is Paul was literally poor but making many spiritually rich. Because you couldn't assume that he's making them financially rich because he wasn't doing that. So he must have been making them spiritually rich. I don't know. I, that's, I think that's the only way you can really in, in, really interpret that is... Yeah. Into joy. Yes, Cheryl, absolutely. Amen. She said that would change your sorrow and the joy. And if you want to see the reality of that, you can read some of these epistles, like Philippians. He was, in Philippians, Paul wrote it from prison, and one of the themes was joy. And the reason for the joy was that the Philippian church was being faithful to the gospel. He had gone and preached the gospel to them, and instead of hating him, Later, because some false teachers came and persuaded them, they sent a man to risk his life to bring a gift to Paul. And so he was rejoicing. And there's no greater riches than to be a recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have faith in it. There's no greater riches to be found anywhere. I was going to quote a scholar by the name of Burnett. But if sorrow was the human opinion of Paul... Joy was the divine reality. Once again, Paul is not referring to some inherent quality or virtue. Such rejoicing is entirely God-given and eschatological, a fruit of the Spirit in this day of God's salvation, a reality to which Paul bears frequent testimony in this letter and elsewhere. For instance, rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. I was talking about Philippians. And then uh, we're talking about the poverty and the riches. He says this, It is more likely, however, that the poverty is literal and the riches are spiritual, as they are in the case of the pre-incarnate and incarnate Christ upon whom Paul appears to pattern his lifestyle. Yes, isn't that true? Remember Philippians? Yes. 
My notes here on uh, verses 8 through 10 says a series of paradoxes, again, highlighting the contrast between the viewpoint of this world and the standpoint of the age to come, the standpoint invisible to the natural eye, mm-hmm. but seen by the eye of faith. That's a good, that's, he also brings up the age to come, or eschatological. We are already entered in to the day of salvation. So there's an already not yet going on, but greater is yet coming. And so having entered into this eschatological day through Messiah, we're recipients of the spiritual blessings, including the, the fruits of the Spirit. But we have more to come when we see him. So that's good. Now, by this illusion, Burnett, by this illusion, Paul is identifying himself as the imitatio, imiter, im, I assume that's Latin for imitate, of the servant, capital S, the servant of Yahweh. As Christ lowered himself, Philippians 2, remember? Uh, so did Paul, as Christ impoverished himself to make others rich, so did his servant. This Paul did through his free gift to them of his ministry, by which at no charge to them he brought the treasure of the grace of God, which ironically the Pauls were, the, excuse me, the Corinthians were in danger of repudiating. Now, of course, Paul's is, is not the same because Christ, Christ humbling himself was efficacious for our salvation because he was God incarnate. Paul was a saved sinner. But Peter tells us to walk in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and that we ought to walk in his footsteps. So Paul was simply a servant walking in the footsteps of his master. Um, As having nothing, this is a very interesting passage here as we get about one minute, is having nothing yet possessing all things. Now again, we have a word play in the Greek, ekontes, and kat ekontes. And it creates the word play, and it creates the opposite here, of having nothing, and in a lot of ways Paul really did. He was just an itinerant preacher, living on the hospitality of others. Remember, yeah, or tent making. Remember, Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to, to lay his head. Yet, possessing all things. So, uh, possessing all things means the blessings of salvation and all of the promised blessings of the coming kingdom. All the end time blessings. Yes, to Sam. Real quick, Paul actually uh, qualifies all his, his paradoxes or antithesis in... Second uh, Corinthians 4, 7, where he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be, will be of God and not from ourselves. And then he starts into another series of these paradoxes where he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So it's all the will of God and not from ourselves. Yeah, that's a very good cross-reference. Earlier, this theme has been carried on throughout Second Corinthians. We're studying a book, by the way, that is the most self-revealing in the Bible about Paul and his ministry. I mean, in this book, he's really pouring out his heart. And he's hoping that by doing so, that the Corinthians will decide to stick with the gospel that he preached to them and not be lured away by the super apostles with their Sophia and their Gnosis, wisdom 
and knowledge, but not the kind that's derived from the apostolic message. So today is uh, what we call Palm Sunday, and I actually am going to preach from the section in Luke where it talks about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So we'll see you upstairs at 1030.